Hi, I'm Ed Whittingham, and you're listening to Energy vs. Climate, the show where my co-host David Keith, Sarah Hastings-Simon, and I debate today's climate and energy challenges, highlighting the Canadian context. If this is your first time joining us, Energy vs. Climate is a live webinar and podcast. Visit energyversusclimate.com to register for updates and get exclusive access to join our live webinars, ask us questions, and engage with us directly. On today's show, the overall goals of the Paris Agreement are to hold the increase in the global average temperature to well below 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels and pursue efforts to limit the temperature increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Since coming into force back in 2016, droves of world leaders have pledged alliance to the need to keep warming to the 1.5 C target by the end of the century in order to avoid dangerous impacts from climate change. I was in Paris in 2015 for COP21, and I remember the activists pushed to shave that half degree Celsius off that already ambitious 2C target, context that we'll get into later on in the show. However, temperature readings around the globe show that the world has already warmed by roughly one degree Celsius on average above pre-industrial levels. And increasingly, climate models suggest that we'll almost certainly exceed 1.5 1.5 C of average warming, possibly in the next 5 to 10 years, or maybe even this year, something our guest speaks to. So David, Sarah and I thought it timely to make the 1.5 C target the topic for today's show, with an eye to unpacking the science, politics, and even the ethics around it. Does the 1.5 C target still make sense if overshoot seems almost certain? Is it a science-based target or a political target, and even a reasonable and just target in the first place? Is the target about holding the line to 1.5C or getting it back down to 1.5C by 2100? And what will be the physical and political consequences of missing it? These are all topics we cover in the show. To help us answer those questions, we're very fortunate to have a terrifically qualified guest in Dr. Zeke Hausfeld. Zeke spent 10 years working in the clean tech sector, where he was the lead data scientist at Essis, the chief scientist at C3.ai, and the co-founder and chief scientist of Efficiency 2.0. Currently, he is a research scientist with Berkeley Earth, climate lead at Stripe, and the U.S. analyst for Carbon Brief. Zeke offered up a lot of excellent insights. So without further ado, let's get to the show. Welcome, Zeke. Thank you. It's uh, great to be here. Wonderful to have you. Let's dive right in. Uh, Zeke, um, why don't we start with the -the behind-the-scenes dynamics that led to that 1.5 C target. Why was preventing that extra half degree of warming seen as so important? And then maybe you could talk to us about how we even measure and define 1.5 uh, degrees Celsius of warming. Sure. So it's always worth pointing out that any of these global targets are a result of a number of competing concerns and optimizations. There's no specific line that we know about where everything goes from fine to catastrophic. It's not like 1.4 degrees is happy and 1.6 degrees is a hellscape or 1.9 versus 2.1 for that matter. And so these targets come out of a political process fundamentally. Uh, And for a long time, the political process around the UNFCCC and the international climate policy world you know, was focused a lot on limiting warming to below two degrees. Um, that sort of got morphed over time into well below two degrees, uh, which a lot of people interpreted as a 66% chance of avoiding two degrees warming. 
Um, but there was a number of countries uh, and organizations that thought that was not enough, particularly small island nations that realized that, you know, given the amount of sea level rise that would be committed in a two degree world, it would threaten the survival of many of their societies. And so during the Paris Agreement, they brought together sort of the higher ambition coalition to push countries to have an aspirational target on top of the commitment to limit warming to well below two degrees of trying to limit warming to 1.5. Now, what was interesting about this is at the time, the scientific community had done relatively little actual modeling or analysis of 1.5 degree scenarios. There's no climate model runs or virtually no climate model runs looking at 1.5 degrees. The, the previous IPCC report, the most ambitious mitigation scenario they modeled was RCP 2.6, which limited warming to about 1.7, 1.8 degrees by 2100. Um, and similarly, there is almost no energy system modeling work done to look at how the energy system could limit warming to below 1.5 degrees. Uh, and so out of the Paris process came a mandate for the IPCC to examine this new proposed 1.5 degree target. And that resulted in this 2018 report on 1.5 degrees that got a huge amount of attention worldwide, it galvanized a lot of the youth climate activism we see today, you know, it was a really watershed moment in the discourse on climate change. And a lot of that was focused on this number 1.5 degrees. The challenge, of course, is that it's really, really, really hard to get global temperatures to 1.5 degrees, uh, particularly without overshooting them on the way there, which we'll, we'll talk about in more detail later. Uh, and so as we haven't done nearly as much as people hoped to cut global emissions over the last decade, it's becoming increasingly obvious that we are going to pass 1.5 degrees in most likely in the next decade. And so that's leading to both a reassessment of what people mean by the 1.5 degree target uh, and, you know, a lot of potential communication challenges for us as, as climate scientists of like, if, if the call in the activist community has been 1.5 degrees to stay alive and we're clearly not going to limit warming to 1.5 degrees, how do we reconcile that and how do we try to pass forward? Uh, and so that's where we are right now. Um, and there's a lot of contradictions inherent in this. Um, but yeah. Yeah. So, so let's actually, when you said, uh, you know, the triggered a reassessment of what people mean by the 1.5 target is, is that target about holding the line by any means possible? We can get into the means later on, but holding the line so that we don't have anything greater than 1.5 C of warming today, 2020s, 2030s. Or now is the consensus around trying to limit warming, trying to get warming back down to 1.5 C by century's end? Or is there any consensus on it whatsoever? So the language of the Paris Agreement implies that it is by the end of the century. Now, when the 2018 IPCC report came out, they looked at a number of different scenarios, so-called no overshoot scenarios that actually tried to limit warming to 1.5 degrees without passing it, low overshoot scenarios and high overshoot scenarios. Um, in the most recent IPCC report, uh, the sixth assessment report, Working Group 3, which came out uh, last year, um, or earlier this year, actually, uh, that report looked at, I think, 230 different scenarios that limit warming to 1.5 degrees by the end of the century. And 96% of those, 221 of them, had some degree of overshoot on the way there. And so it's just becoming vanishingly difficult. It was, it was hard back in 2018, but from the vantage point of today, it's, it's vanishingly difficult to craft a plausible energy system model that can limit warming to 1.5 degrees without passing on the way there. And so the 1.5 degree target has morphed into a de facto overshoot target, though I feel like we haven't done a great job communicating that uh, in all cases. Sure, Isn't it because it's fundamentally a bait and switch? It's like saying 
I, I first say I'm really going to stop drinking. And then I say, no, what I actually mean is I'm going to stop drinking after I drink more. I mean, it's not a failure to communicate. It's a failure to be honest. I think that's certainly part of it. Um, you know, I, I think folks involved in the Paris process would say, well, it was always about 2100, not about how we get there. Um, but at the same time, I don't think that's how the target was more broadly communicated. Certainly wasn't how the target was communicated as I was sitting in those cafes in Paris in 2015 and activists were first latching on to this idea of pushing for a 1.5C target. But uh, and, and just on overshoot, this is a plug for a past episode. We had Adrian Abacas, a French diplomat, uh, on the show last season talking about the Global Commission on Overshoot, which David has some involvement in. Now, let's bring it up to today. So how much warming have we experienced to date? I think we're at a little over one one uh, centigrade, a uh, one degree centigrade of warming above pre-industrial to date. What, but what does the latest data say in warming to date? And and when, if it's ninety six percent of the models have some degree of overshoot, when are we likely? When are we likely to exceed that one point five C threshold? And moreover, how will we know? You can talk to us just a little mm-hmm. bit about the science of temperature readings. So the warming to date that we've experienced. Uh, as reported by the most recent IPCC report, was about 1.1 C above pre-industrial levels. The issue with that number is it's a decadal average of the last 10 years. And we know that the world is warming by about you know two-tenths of a degree per decade. And so if you use more, to be honest, relevant statistical methods that can try to extend that value up through today, you know, we're somewhere between 1.1 degrees and 1.3 degrees across the different surface temperature records with a, a mean of around 1.2 um, today. So there's only 0.3 C left until we pass 1.5 degrees in terms of the long-term average warming. That said, on top of that long-term average warming, there's a lot of internal variability. You know, a big El Nino event can add 0.2 C to global temperatures. You know, there's other factors like declining aerosols being somewhat faster than models predicted that are contributing to additional warming. Um, You know, there's been a lot of discussion about a, a recent volcano that put a lot of water vapor in the stratosphere having a short form warming impact. And so the confluence of these factors mean that we might actually see a single year above 1.5 degrees up to a full decade before the long-term average passes that level. And in fact, um, you know, at least some surface temperature records, such as the Berkeley Earth one that I produce, we now see a greater than 50% chance that this year, 2023, will be the first year above 1.5 C since pre-industrial. At the same time, the way that 1.5 C is generally defined, and there's not always a clear definition of it, unfortunately is as sort of a 20-year average period. At least that's the way the IPCC approached it. And so we don't expect a 20-year average to pass 1.5 degrees, you know, the center point of a 20-year average, uh, until the early 2030s. That's what most models uh, suggest uh, and what you know more naive methods of linearly extrapolating past warming trends would suggest, even though we're going to see a number of individual years and months and certainly days pass 1.5 degrees well before then. Got you. It's twenty-year average. Uh, when when you said the world warms by two tenths of a degree by decade, uh, I was wondering if warming is actually like that old Hemingway line when the question was, "How did you go bankrupt two ways gradually and then suddenly?" Is warming does warming accelerate? Is it accelerating, or is it that constant of two tenths of a degree by decade? So that is a very interesting question at the moment that is causing a lot of debate within the community. Um, Historically, since 1970, it's been pretty consistent at around two-tenths of a degree. There is evidence suggesting we might be seeing an acceleration over the last decade or so. At the same time, a lot of scientists are still gun-shy over the whole hiatus or pause debate that we had in the early 2000s. Um, around if you know 
there was a detectable pause in global warming. And so our, our threshold for detecting an acceleration and talking about it is correspondingly much higher. Um, at the same time, I think there's reason to believe that as CO2 concentration or as CO2 emissions don't decrease and, and other greenhouse gas emissions continue to increase, and as we reduce planet cooling aerosol emissions, which have been cut by about 20 to 30 percent globally uh, in the last you know, couple decades, you know, we would expect the confluence of those factors, all things being equal, to lead to a near-term acceleration in the rate of warming. So probably a little bit too early to know for sure if you're just basing it on observations, but I personally would expect, and a lot of our models expect, a near-term acceleration. Got you. Okay, can yeah, I can sure. I speak in Go one on. question to add to our guest? So you talked about the difference between you know a single year or a month of of one point five degrees versus sort of the definition of the target over twenty years. Can you just comment on how that connects to the physical impacts or outcomes that we're trying to avoid from avoiding warming? You know, if we have a year that's one point five, does that mean that you see the same kind of negative impacts that you would see uh, when you have twenty years of that average, or or is there a difference there in the sort of physical outcome? It depends a lot on what impacts you're looking at. You know, if you're looking at heat stress on coral reefs, obviously, you know, a single year can cause massive bleaching, but it's the aggregation of bleaching events over time that prevent recovery and, and lead to, you know, large scale mortality. Similarly, if you're looking at something like sea level rise, it's really the integral of temperatures over time that's driving sea levels. Whereas other things like extreme heat events, you know, the likelihood of those is probably going to be roughly the same in a, a single year above 1.5 degrees as a, a long term average above 1.5 degrees with the caveat that certain phenomenon like El Nino that can lead to higher global temperatures can have some effect on the distribution of heat uh, and the likelihood of heat events in, in one particular area. Uh, but we're certainly already seeing months well over 1.5 degrees. In fact, this September is going to be the warmest month uh, in terms of uh, anomalies ever by a fairly large margin, about 1.7 to 1.8 degrees above pre-industrial levels is where we expect September uh, 2023 to end up. Um, and we've seen some individual days this September at 1.9 degrees above pre-industrial levels. So we certainly have, have already seen, you know, short periods of these very extreme global temperatures, you know, at least compared to historical averages. And, and just, I've, I've got to ask, Zeke, so with what we're experiencing in September, you'd mentioned that they're just natural and cyclical phenomena like El Nino that can, that can drive temperature increases. What, what is causing this, this spike that we're having this month? So it's hard to say for a single month, uh, but certainly for what we've been experiencing this year, you know, it is primarily driven by the switch from a unusually extended triple dip La Nina event that lasted between late 2020 and early this year into a strong and increasingly strong El Nino event. And so it's not just, you know, the magnitude of the El Nino so far for neutral conditions. It's this rapid switch from a moderately strong La Nina to a strong El Nino um, on top of the long-term warming trend. And then there's, you know, some other potential causes that, you know, researchers are actively looking into, one being a phase out of uh, sulfur in marine fuel uh, in 2020 that cut global uh, sulfate aerosol emissions by about 10% overnight. Uh, and then another is this uh, very unusual volcano that erupted last year. You know, volcanoes generally cool the planet by injecting sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere. This one was very, very low sulfur content and injected 150 million metric tons of water vapor into the stratosphere, um, where it can have a fairly large warming effect. Again, estimates I've seen published for both of these suggest together they might be responsible for a tenth of a degree additional warming in that realm, though with very large uncertainties. Uh, and a lot more scientific work has to be done. I feel like there's, there's going to be dissertations to be written on <laughs> just how 
anomalous 2023 was uh, and trying to tease out the proximate causes. And so it's, it's hard to know for sure in the middle of it. Got you. All right, David, question for you. Uh, and I think I, I have a sense of what you might say, but does the 1.5C target still make any sense if overshoot seems almost certain? And I did, I will know you used a drinking analogy earlier. You used a drinking analogy during our show on offsets when you offered to pay me to drink less. I think I was going to normally drink 50 beers and you offered to pay me to drink less in a night. Um, so I, I love these analogies that you use, especially when it's sort of sending booze my way. But what <laughs> does, does, does the target make any sense? Sounds like you're happy either getting the booze or the money. Um, so, so I think, uh, so as, as Zeke said, there's nothing objective about these targets. They're fundamentally political and that's fine. It's normal in environmental policy that science can't produce some correct answer. We have to deal with trade-offs that should be a political process. Nothing to be ashamed about about it being political. Um, but I think a question that, that I was asking earlier is for getting solar geoengineering, which is a way that in principle we could meet 1.5, but let's leave it off the table. If you're asking, um, is it ethical to cut emissions fast enough to meet 1.5, the environmental community tends to always assume that that's really what we should do. We really ought to do it, but we're just too slow or we can't. But I think a, a way that I ask the question is, assume you're czar, you're in control of the world, but the world has the same actual trade-offs that it has now. Um, at what point is it unethical to aim for 1.5? And I think there is some point where you'd have to cut emissions so fast that you'd have to sacrifice so many other social ends. We could cut emissions very, very fast, but it would require a level of command and control and also military force to back up that command and control that's even, you know, it's potentially beyond the kind of World War II levels. I don't think we're quite there now, but we're close to that. And uh, there are other social goals, other environmental goals, other than um, than climate. And if you tried to meet 1.5 uh, uh, too aggressively, the answer is you're sacrificing a bunch of those goals. And I think people in the environmental community have to really get serious about whether they actually mean it when they say we should aim for 1.5. Sarah, and I think, as you think, if if you are global energy versus climate czar, and you could enforce or not enforce a 1.5C target, what would you do? Yeah, I mean, I think I'll just sort of pick up on what David was saying. And I think within that, there is a difference between sort of the levels of emission reductions that are needed from certain portions of the population and certain portions of the globe, which I think are achievable and would not be, you know, unethical. I mean, it starts to get into a lot of questions of how you trade off, you know, people's life with comfort and things like that. But, but I think there is a tendency to, in the conversation, sort of mix those two things together and say, you know, yes, like denying people access to energy obviously is going to raise some real ethical flags, trying to get uh, the the very wealthy part of the world to reduce their own emissions by you know either moderating consumption or or making investments and and spending money to do so I think that's where there aren't so many ethical quandaries. Well, uh, I think this is just thinking about money. I'm thinking about hardware on the ground. If you actually put me in charge with infinite power to say cut emissions in a developed world in half in ten years or something, I believe it's quite doable. But to be clear, one of the very first things I do is say a whole bunch of environmental siting rules are out the window. It's like, you know, local people get two weeks to intervene about whether or not they want this nuclear power plant or long distance transmission line there. And after that, it's a hard decision. And if they don't like it, the troops come and push them off the land. I mean, you, you can't, you can't, you have to build infrastructure so fast. And you also need to be able to do things like you say, we're going to build 
this kind of solar uh, power thing and somebody else has the IP, forget the IP. We're just commanding this industry to go build it. That's how you build things this fast. And and humans can do this and it might be right, but you got to be clear-eyed that if you're talking about building that much hardware that fast, that's the kind of rules behind it. You might be saying, we're going to choose this nuclear power plant design. We're going to force people who don't normally build it, companies that don't normally build these components to build them. And you know, no questions asked. You just do it the way we did in World War II. Yeah, yeah, no, I think uh, certainly, that's... Oh, go ahead, Zeke. <laughs> I was just going to say, th- certainly the World War II mobilization analogy is, is often used by the environmental community, or some parts of it at least. Uh, and I don't think they necessarily think through the implications of that fully. Yeah. I, I would emphasize, though, that you know, any a, a tenth of a degree represents a huge amount of car- relative carbon budget. And, and the reason why 1.5C is so extreme today is because we're already so close to it. Exactly. And so it's certainly possible to imagine a world that's 1.6C, 1.7C, where we, you know, don't necessarily have to have as big trade-offs between, you know, quality of life uh, or other dynamics and the ability to have an energy transition. Like, I'm convinced that we can have an energy transition that is net beneficial for the world, uh, in not just in terms of climate, but in terms of of other, you know, benefits of producing air pollution, of lowering costs, of, of other things. It's just really hard to have it at the speed that would be required to prevent temperatures from exceeding 1.5 degrees this century. I completely agree. I think that was sort of the key point. So I absolutely agree. Uh, aiming for a target a little bit of 1.5 gets much easier if, when you aim for it, you really begin to drive at high speed, not the kind of crazy speed I'm saying, but high deliberate speed. The issue is if we don't drive at high speed, if we just kind of keep on slightly accelerated business as usual, then we keep pushing the football down the road. But I absolutely agree that we can have an energy transition that's beneficial in all sorts of ways and brings emissions towards zero and do it in a way that gets us in under two. I think that's quite doable. But but aiming close to 1.5, I think is technically feasible, but has these really hard trade-offs. Again, you're right. The environmental community likes their World War II analogy but the World War II analogy also meant a lot of people uh, dying in workplace accidents, a lot of other trade-offs that are um, uh, against other social goals. You, you, you can't society can't do uh, one thing full out and do everything else it wants to do as well. And I, I don't think the, the the World War II analogy has ever been a good analogy. Uh, Chris Turner in his book How to Be a Climate Optimist talks about this, but principally. We, we lack a clear and present danger the way that we had in, in, in World War II. But then I, it begs the question, so if we're going to have overshoot, but let's assume for argument's sake, and I'm looking around the Zoom uh, uh, images here to see if we're nodding, let's assume for argument's sake that, that over time we can make this energy transition. No one thinks that we can't do it. it, certainly doesn't violate the laws of physics. But then what degree of overshoot is acceptable on that journey to bending to to getting emissions first to plateau, then ultimately bringing them down to a level, whether it be 2C or 1.5C by century's end, or even by 2150. So I do have to bring up solar geoengineering. This conversation has been all assuming that we're deciding not to do it. But if the scientific evidence, even scientific evidence from many assessments, look at the recent One Atmosphere report from the uh, UNEP, the scientific evidence is if you wanted to shave off a little bit of warming with, with solar geo, the benefits might be much, much larger, the environmental and social benefits than the harms. And and so we got to decide whether that's on the table or not. But I do think back the, to you, David, What when do you do it? So let's say we, as Zeke said, by the early 2030s, we've got that 20-year mean. We know that we've exceeded 1.5, we're up to 2, we're up to 2.5. 
when do you pull the trigger uh, to bring the temperature down by a half C Celsius or some other degree? That That's the wrong question. Drawing it on my half C would be a sudden decline. That would be crazy. The kind of solar geoengineering ideas that people are talking about seriously would be a thin wedge that would, for example, start replacing what was happening with the added warming we have from unmasking the um, the, the aerosol cooling from, from shipping. And so you could start a thin wedge like that in three years if you wanted to. I do think it's worth pointing out that solar geoengineering doesn't solve the need to deal with overshoot. <laughs> um, it masks the problem that has a really potentially big value in reducing impacts in the meantime. But at the same time, the, the number I always go back to and, and why I worry a bit about being too blasé about overshoot is say that we succeed wildly in getting the cost of carbon removal down and it's only $100 a ton to take carbon out of the atmosphere at gigaton scales. That means to reduce global temperatures by a tenth of a degree centigrade costs $22 trillion. That's a big number. And so every tenth of a degree of warming of overshoot we have, either masked or unmasked, is a $22 trillion debt we're passing down to future, future generations if they ever want to bring temperatures back down to, one, say, 1.5 or whatever target they want. Um, and so I think we need to be cognizant of that. Um, and, you know, I, my one concern, and I don't want to make this into a solar yeah. geoengineering debate, but my one concern about solar geoengineering is if it is as cheap as we think it is, it becomes a lot easier to justify passing larger and larger debts to future generations uh, in a way that I think is problematic. I, I do think there is a moral hazard concern there simply because a problem that is masked is not a problem that is as present for us and, and as urgent to deal with. That said, you know, making the yeah. opposite argument that we need to make it bad and hurt people so we deal with it is, is morally problematic on in many levels yeah. as well. It's, it's not yeah. an easy issue. <laughs> I mean, of course, the moral hazard concern is the concern everybody raises. I think I was the first person to use that term for this topic, completely agreed. But at some level, we need to push beyond that and talk about the real environmental and social trade-offs. Sure. And let's, let's, yeah. let's get to that. What I'm hearing you say, Zeke, is the more successful we are at mitigation, the less CO2 that we'll need to remove from the atmosphere to achieve global climate goals and to bring warming down to some acceptable level. And and while I'm supportive of negative emissions technology, I'm also alarmed at the emphasis that's being placed on their success in recent models, IPCC models, for instance. And when we talk about overshoot and significant overshoot, we're getting to very large numbers of carbon removal that we'll need. We're talking about hundreds of billions of tons of the amount of carbon removal that's that's required. And that, you know, I work in the space, but that is a massive scale up and a massive reduction in the cost of carbon removal. But Sarah, Sarah, what let's talk about so we're gonna we're gonna exceed 1.5 C of warming. It's just a matter of time. What are the political consequences of missing that target? Well, I mean, I guess in some ways big and in some ways not. I mean, certainly in Canada, we have a lot of experience and, and globally, I think we have a lot of experience with missing climate targets um, and continuing on. And and I think the, the challenge or the problem would be if we become so focused on it and it becomes such a black and white, like either we do this or we throw up our hands and, and kind of give up. And I don't think that in the real kind of detailed discussion of what we need to be doing, there is a big risk of that happening, right? I don't think that anybody's saying, well, you know, it's 1.5. And if that doesn't work, then we just go home, right? I think the bigger risk politically 
is one of communication and kind of communication with the, you know, with the broader population around what we're, what we're trying to do here. Um, but I don't, I mean, I guess I, I, I would say on the whole, I think I'm not super worried about it from a political standpoint. Obviously, it's worrying from a you know physical impact standpoint. Um, but I think that we can you know continue to have this target. I think the target can still be very useful to try to both measure you know our policies against and understand where we're falling behind. I think there's little risk of that turning into you know what David was saying of well we're going to you know adopt some kind of world war 2 style you know we just bulldoze people and and do stuff anyway um and and it sort of is still helpful to at least have some kind of even if it's aspirational some kind of goal to be um to be aiming towards but it's thinking of the inverse Sarah will blowing through the 1.5c target be a demotivating factor and will it actually harm progress are you worried about that Again, I mean, aside from the, you know, worries about what happens when you miss that target, I, I'm not particularly worried that it will demotivate people, right? And I mean, I think there is, you know, 1.5 has been central, but 2 is also out there as a target, right? So I think I would be more worried if that was the only target and there wasn't also discussion of a 2-degree target. Um, and I think that there's... Yeah, I mean, it, may, maybe I'll just stop with that. I think that I think there is already a little bit of a backup kind of built into the system. I mean, will people kind of use that? And, you know, I'm sure there will be people that write headlines that say, oh, look, we passed 1.5 and the world didn't fall apart. So, like, we should all, you know, it's all fine and we should all just go home or, you know, whatever it is, that the, the kind of disinformation that, that will come. But I don't think that that will come any more necessarily be any more effective just because of a, you know, 1.5 target that we that we do or don't manage to to reach I, I do worry about that myself seeing the new movement within particularly conservative movements uh at least in the developed world recently and that is pivoting from dismissing the science of climate change to accepting the science of climate change but challenging what they call hyperbole around the impacts of warming and pushing through 1.5c is exactly that you would have certain actors i think in those communities saying Gee, the sky didn't fall. You know, we we didn't have massive heat deaths, or you know, we we haven't had a uh, a hockey stick like increase in extreme weather. So what's so bad? Why do we need to spend all this money in such a short period of time when we should be focusing just on providing energy at as cheap as possible, cheap a a, a, a price as possible to to the globe? I guess I would say two things that I'm interested in, and David and Zeke's view on that. I mean, I think one is that we are going to see a lot of negative impacts, right, at 1.5. You know, we're already starting to see some. I think the other is a little bit of a, you know, that that kind of narrative of the sky is not falling. And I think the other big narrative that we're hearing that I'm actually almost more worried about is one of delay. Like, well, we we can, you know, make some adjustments, but it's going to take a long time. It's going to take generations to make this change and this transition is that there is no perfect formulism or perfect target or perfect communication that's going to change any of that. That's just going to always be there anyway. And we have to change it by showing that we can build this stuff and showing people that they can, you know, have a life that is comfortable through this transition um, and, and worrying too much about, you know, trying to say exactly the right thing to win over that, that debate is, you know, a lost cause. This feels like the challenge of our society having debates that have any kind of middle ground. So it's certainly true that people exaggerate climate impacts for sure in lots of systematic ways. And the kind of environmental left really talks about existential risk in a way that 
makes a lot of climate scientists I talk to pretty uncomfortable. On the other hand, climate change is really bad, and we really know a lot about the impacts, and they're no joke. And and so the challenge is how to have that conversation in a kind of reasoned way. Um, I don't know how to do it. And I think there is some inherent tension here that as we make progress on climate change, as as some of these worst case futures, you know, the RCP 8.5s of the world, for example, move increasingly out of sight, you know, people are going to point to that and say, oh, well, we avoided that problem. You know, it's not going to be as bad as we thought. And that's true because we've taken action on it. Uh, and so how to weave that narrative together to, you know, make sure that we're justifying a world below two degrees, but not making it contingent on a counterfactual warming of four or five degrees, I think is a challenge that the community needs to address better. And it is a reason why I do think there is a role for some more ambitious scenarios. You know, 1.5 without overshoot is a, a very extreme case here. Um, but I, I remember, you know, in some of the early U.S. national climate assessments, there's a real reluctance among many people to use RCP 2.6 because people thought it was too ambitious. And so a lot of thoughts and a lot of analyses compared a no mitigation world of RCP 8.5 to a mitigation world of RCP 4.5. And now we're on a world heading more or less to RCP 4.5. Or another example is uh, my friend Glenn Peters had this great lecture back in 2015, and the sort of um, punchline at the end was, is two degrees possible? Yes, but only in a model. Uh, and I think I, and, and probably he as well, would be a lot more optimistic today about our ability to limit warming to two degrees by the end of the century than we were 10 years ago, um, based on the progress we've made. I want to jump in with something from the class I taught yesterday. So I, I wanted to use Hofford at all, that wonderful old paper, and I wanted to put a dot for current emissions on IS-92A. And you know that was the original ER scenario for, for business as usual. And we're right about exactly on IS-92A. I know, I know maybe I did this wrong, but you've weighed in on whether kind of 8.5 is too high. And 8.5 is sort of relabeled IS-92A. But the fact is, we are right about exactly it. We're just a little over 10.2 gigaton C now. And it's 2023. That's pretty close to smack on IS-92A. Tell me that I'm too pessimistic. I mean, the, the differences between scenarios are still relatively small today. Um, there's a good picture or figure that Glenn has put together looking at all the old generations of scenarios up through the RCPs and plotting both fossil CO2 emissions and total CO2 emissions. Um, I think total CO2 emissions might be a little higher in some of these than fossil CO2 emissions, but fossil are the ones that are 90% of the growth in most of these scenarios. Um, I think the bigger question is what's going to happen in the future. And there, I think there's a, a growing consensus among, you know, IEA, Climate Action Tracker, UNEP, and, you know, the models that were assessed in the most recent IPCC report that we're in for a world of, of relatively flat emissions. And, you know, the odds of tripling global emissions and having a 5x increase in coal use uh, by the end of the century are, are pretty vanishingly small. So I think it's less about, you know, where we are today relative to these scenarios. So at least relative to the RCPs, we are, you know, at least in the latest global carbon project numbers uh, on more or less RCP 4.5. Um, but rather this large expansion of emissions later in the century that's projected in the high emission scenarios becoming less possible. Zeke, can, can you talk about the connection between the physical science, uh, as we understand it through modeling work, to political action on climate change. You'd mentioned that RCP 2.6 was seen as too aggressive to actually then come up with an international treaty and, and nationally determined targets around that. Why is that the case? And, and how it, it seems to me that there is this disconnect between the physical science and political action, and that we also have a problem with IPCC integrated assessment models, and that they're often based on outdated cost data for technologies, which has the opposite effect 
uh, perhaps of you know making uh, political action or international treaties less ambitious than we should have. So could, could you talk about that connection and how to improve it? I think certainly the IPCC has been, until recently, a bit of a lagging indicator in terms of ambitious mitigation scenarios. So in the old days of the SRES scenarios, you know, before the um, fifth assessment report, there really were not was not that much focus on mitigation. It was more, you know, these are different baseline scenarios that could occur, you know, through different mixes of technological development um, with less emphasis on policy. You know, RCP, the RCPs were the first where there really was a, a big focus on mitigation. It was the central part of it, with only one scenario being sort of no mitigation. Um, though there's some critiques you can make about the choice there. Um, you know, I, but, but yeah, you do also point out that there is a bit of a conservatism built into a lot of these integrated assessment models. And part of that is the nature of those models. Uh, part of that is also just the design of the IPCC cycle times. Like the models that are being run today or the successors to the SSPs are going to show up in an IPCC report in about seven years. And so they'll be using Sorry, assumptions so you, wh- from wh- today. Why that, why that lag? That, why does it take so long? So there's sort of a stack of like what ends up coming out in the climate model runs done by the IPCC. First, you need emission scenarios. Then you need concentrations. Then you need climate modeling groups around the world to run those concentration scenarios, which itself takes a number of years because these are supercomputer models using huge amounts of computing power and resources. Um, and then you need to write it all up and publish it in the IPCC report. And because the emission scenarios are the first step in that chain of events that leads to report creation, they tend to be the thing that is the most out of date by the time the report finally comes out. Now, there are more up-to-date models, uh, and Working Group 3 certainly featured a lot of those. Uh, but the models that underlie Working Group 1 and, and all the climate model outputs uh, in terms of energy system assumptions are often pretty pretty out of date. When just picking up, Ed, on, on what you were saying um, about the kind of connection between the climate science and the politics, and I'll take that also to the policy. And I think David sort of started to hit on it, which is like there is this reality that, you know, that the, the science behind what's going to happen with warming is very complex there is very hard to have these complicated or like sophisticated public debates of, you know, what is actually the outcomes. But I'll actually layer on what I think is another challenge, which is like the idea that somehow we have some kind of real central planning function or that, you know, there there is any process by which we sit down and say, well, here's the things that happen if we get to 1.5 degrees versus two versus above that. And therefore we can translate into the, you know, here's the set of uh, actions that we're all willing to take and we judge as reasonable, you know, even setting aside the fact that that would be very hard to do ethically because how do you, you know, judge the d- disaster or damage in one place to a life somewhere else that, you know, it's just, it's sort of, in my mind, it's like a nice fantasy. Like I would love if you know, that's the way it worked that we had kind of modeled this all out. We figured out what we were going to do, but it feels like the reality is that it's a much more messy process. And maybe we shouldn't be asking these targets and these temperature understanding of temperature changes and impacts to connect quite so much with the actions, right? Like maybe it is more appropriate to say, look, we need to study this stuff and understand it and understand where we're going and try to, you know, also plan for it as best as we can. And then we need to, you know, face the real challenges that we have on transforming our energy systems. And somehow we want them to be a little bit connected. So we sort of have a sense of where things get really bad, but like we're asking too much if we think that they're going to be in this coordinated way. 
Ah, so now we know your fantasy is Soviet central planning. <laughs> no, but seriously, I, I have something I want to pass on to, to But Z. you want to be global just, energy star. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah the, truth, the truth is I, I kind of want some Soviet central planning too, if I'm honest. Probably everybody. But anyway, um, I, I want to make a plea for things being in a way simpler than than they look. So, you know, the one thing that we really have this kind of robust with an error bar ability to predict is global temperature. There's like, in some ways, the climate models really haven't changed much over over my 30-year plus career. And and what has changed is we now are much more confident that one of the biggest, probably the biggest single contributor to the total impacts of climate change is simply heat. Heat affecting economic productivity, heat affecting morbidity, heat affecting learning. And to the extent that that's true, and it's really not as much as people think extreme heat, it's really just more heat, then that kind of makes the story simpler and more robust. I think that it's only when you think you have to predict where every single cyclone is that the climate science is really complicated. I'd like to hear Zeke's take on that. Yeah. Uh, no, I think it's a really important point. And it's actually an area where the community has made some progress. Like w- one of the neatest things for me in in the IPCC sixth assessment report was just how much focus there was on the output of it. climate model emulators, things like FAIR and MAGIC, yeah. these things you can run on your laptop that will give you the same global surface temperature response, maybe even some regional things um, as a, a supercomputer model, but in a tiny fraction of the time. And Parkas are, you know, tuned to the parameters that are derived from these supercomputer models. Um, so they're not like an independent thing necessarily. Uh, but those are a really powerful tool for the community to answer some of these problems more quickly. And there's a lot of work right now going on in, in things like pattern scaling or some machine learning-based approaches to try to use the global mean output of these simple models and then create spatial dynamics that are consistent with what we get from the supercomputer models. So I, I think there's a lot of work happening right now to try to create a happy medium between those two that folks can use to do much more rapid analyses of, of impacts of different scenarios in a way that might shortcut, you know, this multi-year wait to get the supercompute time needed to run these bigger system models. 100% agree. That could be a whole other session. Yeah, this pattern scaling and fair and so on, really agree. Maybe question for Zeke and, and, and perhaps David as well. Models are so often under attack by, I think, people with political actors with vested interests against the results that the models are spitting out. But can we say that the degree of warming we've reached today and the impacts that we're experiencing today by that degree of warming, were they generally predicted by the models going back 30 years ago, like to the models, the projections from the early 1990s? Yeah, big picture. see David's head nodding. Yep. I actually published a paper on this in 2020 with uh, Gavin Schmidt and a bunch of other people where we looked at all the old climate models published since 1970, digitized their projections, and compared them to what actually happened in the years after they were published. I, uh, and it a... turns out... Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say that the models generally were were pretty spot on with the, the warming that happens you know, after they were published. Back when I was in Calgary and getting invited to the Calgary Petroleum Club, I had a line that tended to work on some of these skeptics. I said... It's not very expensive to hire people to build climate models. If you guys are so sure that the climate sensitivity to CO2 is zero, go hire a bunch of people, make the model code. And you know, if, if there's some physically correct parameterization that gives you climate sensitivity to zero, knock yourselves out. And of course, they never do it because there isn't. So we've we've understood the science, and this is a yay science moment. We've understood the science roughly going back to the 19th century. David, you often say that the first report that kind of got the science right landed on President Johnson's desk in about the mid-1960s. Our models from the 1990s are bearing out today. So there's a pretty straight line trajectory around science of, of climate change, the predictions, and what we're realizing. 
Yeah. I mean, if you compare it to other environmental science topics where there's some uh, persistent organics, where there's really deep uncertainty about really deep, deep uncertainty about what the impacts are for climate, in some ways, the uncertainty is a lot smaller than other aspects of environmental policy. Yeah. The, the uncertainty is still relevant, right? You know, the fact that it might warm somewhere between two degrees and five degrees if we double CO2 has huge policy implications. But we've done a lot of work to narrow those uncertainties since the 70s, particularly in, in recent decades, you know, to plug a project I was involved in. Um, we had this big international collaboration uh, a couple of years back, uh, led by Steve Sherwood, that tried to use a whole bunch of different independent lines of evidence from the Earth's distant past, from current observations, from physical process modeling to jointly constrain our estimates of how sensitive the climate is to our emissions. And so we've made real progress on that. But these uncertainties still mean that, you know, when we're thinking about climate impacts, like we talk a lot about the world is on track for three degrees warming or 2.5 degrees warming or whatever, those still come with big enough uncertainties that we need to worry. And we can't rule out some of these tail risks if we sort of roll sixes on the, the climate dice of sensitivity and, and carbon cycle feedback uncertainties. So I don't want to say there's no uncertainty, but the basics, the physics is extremely solid. Um, Great. Okay. It is, it is my job now to be solid on moving us to question and answer. So uh, Fred Peterson asked the question, I'm just reading it here. How should we compare current temperatures to those of the immediately prior interglacial warm period? It was two degrees warmer than current, according to IPCC. So I think that, you know, we don't know precisely what the previous interglacial was. Uh, it's probably somewhere in the range of one to two degrees warmer than uh, pre-industrial temperatures. So I think current temperatures are probably comparable if they were to extend for a century to, to what the world experienced in the past interglacial. Um, but yeah, you know, the, these numbers we're talking about in terms of global warming are big. But the one that always sticks with me is the last ice age was about six degrees C cooler than pre-industrial temperatures. And we're on track to add, you know, around three degrees warming centigrade to the Earth's temperature this century. And so that's roughly half an ice age uh, in, in terms of warming. Uh, and so, you know, the, a couple degrees might sound small globally, but it ends up being a, a much bigger value uh, in terms of, you know, the what most people actually experience since land is warming 50% faster than the world as a whole. You know, as I like to say, no one lives in the global average. And okay. I guess just uh, adding on to that, that pace of change is the part that makes it really hard as humans to adapt to that, right? And and also for all the species that are, you know, seeing that change not over a, a very long period of time, but over this short period of time. And, and that raises a fundamental question. It is difficult to react to rapid change, but we humans as a species on life may be better placed to react to that rapid change than non-human species. Is that, Zeke, is that a fair thing to say? I think it is. You know, the natural world certainly lacks the adaptive capacity we have, particularly since we have fragmented the natural world so much that a lot of plants and animals that would traditionally migrate to different temperature zones in response to a changing climate can't effectively do that today. Um, at the same time, you know, our ability to adapt as humans really depends on how well we do at solving a lot of the other pressing problems facing humanity. You know, if we're in a world of extreme inequality, poverty, weak institutions, I could certainly see that being a world where climate is much more likely to help push countries over the brink than if we're in a world of, you know, it's wealthy, relatively equal, you know, everyone has a high adaptive capacity. That's actually one of the reasons that I like to think of climate change less as an existential threat in and of itself and more as an existential threat multiplier. You know, if we do bad at solving all the rest of humanity's problems, climate on top of that could be really catastrophic. Yeah, yeah, that's well fair. Said. And if we do well, and if we do well, Maybe the impact on we humans is light, 
or less than expected, but the impact on other species of life is very heavy. Mm -hmm. um, Jim McPhail, you've got a question. Uh, feel free to ask it. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I'm curious, curious and concerned, quite honestly. Uh, I noticed when the discussion was coming about sort of the equation of if we're looking at 1.5% and is this feasible or can we just allow an overshoot? And I, I agree that 1.5 isn't going to be attained uh, anytime soon. But as the discussion was talking about the different quanta to consider in is this fair, is it reasonable, how much do we put into it? The talk of ethics came up uh, a bit about the economics and so on. And I'm thinking, what threw me was in that whole equation that other factors weren't even being mentioned. Uh, things like we've, we're losing keystone species in different ecological systems. So a number of communities right now around the world who are being horribly affected. You know, like many, many, many thousand people are treating the type climate migrants or just plain bodies. Um, and the discussion didn't even come up to that. And it was mentioned, I say that some of the, if you will, the conservatives talk about, oh, well, you know, like we don't really need to do this. So 1.5 showed me the real effects. I'm, I'm not seeing effects. It's like, well, hold on. Maybe in your block, you don't see that, but you don't have to look very far and not even in Canada to see where the effects are happening. So that's my concern is that a number of these factors didn't even come into the discussion. So I'm curious about, okay, how do we actually get them into the equation of uh, what, even what factors to use to decide how much effort to put in? Thank you. Uh, Jim, just to be clear, when you say it doesn't factor into the discussion, are you talking about our discussion or are you talking just to the societal discussion at large? Uh, both, actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. David, I'm looking at you. Uh, I'm back from a week in India talking climate change and solar geo with a bunch of Indian researchers. And it really, I'll say it really felt different there. The level of seriousness with which the extreme temperatures are taken feels different. Um, and that's in a world that's so transformed by human action that people think less about the natural world, I think it's fair to say. And so maybe, I'm not sure this is answering your question, but I'm just struck by the difference between that and, you know, my friends in Canmore, you know, some of whom work on Yellowstone to Yukon and really think about this interaction of climate change and the impact of humans in the natural world, where just as Zeke said, it's a multiplier. I hope that's at least a partial answer. If, if I can just add really quick, you know, I, I think that all of us are very cognizant of the impacts of climate change, but the ones we're already experiencing today, you know, in, in things like extreme fire uh, conditions, uh, heat waves, sea level rise, and the ones that are going to happen, you know, even at 1.5 degrees. Uh, I, I think the discussion earlier in terms of just how quickly you reduce emissions is, is the question of where do you create that balance? You know, we could, it wouldn't violate the laws of physics to cut all global emissions to zero tomorrow, but it certainly would have catastrophic effects on, on many societies. That's an extreme case, but where where do you draw the line of, of what is plausible? And I think right now the challenge is getting emissions to zero quickly enough to limit warming to 1.5 degrees would involve getting all global emissions to zero in the next 20 years. Not just us in the rich countries, but you know, sub-Saharan Africa, China, India, everywhere. Uh, and it's just really hard to see a pathway to do that. You know, maybe if we do it in the next 40 years, we get to 1.6 or 1.7 degrees, that's a much more plausible pathway from where we are today. But that trade-off of, of which of those we pursue is not a question we can answer here. Uh, it's one of sort of ethics and economics and modeling and, and many, many different things, you know, all sort of swirled up. And in practice, it often ends up being more of a political process than any sort of objective optimization of, of costs and benefits. 
or, or of course, we get it to net zero in 40 years or so and do a little tiny wedge of solar geoengineering so we keep temperatures at more like 1.5. Oh, so a solar oh. geo-related question. Oh, sorry, Sarah, you go ahead, and then I want to get John Sproul's question in. Sounds good. I just wanted to go back to something that we were discussing earlier in this context, right? And, and David, you were talking about, you know, whether people have the, what, what kind of rights they have to protest or, or uh, respond to the proposed projects in their area. Um, and, and I do think that we, we need to have more clear discussions too on like, what is the balance of power we're giving to different individuals within our society to prevent action or prevent mitigation from moving forward versus who experiences that right into that. And there was a really interesting paper that, that just came out this week um, with uh, Leah Stokes and others that was looking at where uh, opposition to wind turbines came from um, in U.S. and Canada and sort of looking at the, the wealth, for example, of the region and correlating that and finding, you know, there was more uh, opposition to, to build out of clean energy infrastructure in places that were wealthier. And, and of course, we know that a lot of the negative impacts, direct air uh, pollution impacts from uh, power generation are more likely to impact communities that are poorer. And so I do think that there are, you know, even aside from kind of the bigger climate question, even just on the local level of, you know, air pollution and things like that, there are good arguments that the current system that we have is not equitable in terms of how much power people have to object to, you know, projects and to download real physical impacts on others. Um, so, you know, obviously a lot of work to do to fix that too, but I think, I think it's worth noting. Here, here. So I want to build upon Sarah's question. You talked about the local impacts of air pollution. Let's talk about the global impacts of air uh, pollution. So Don Sproul or Don Spruel, uh, apologies, uh, he wants us, he says, can you say more about the cause and effect of declining aerosols? And going back to Zeke's magic wand, if we were to make, wave a magic wand, and let's say we're, get, we're to get rid of all coal-fired generation on the planet tomorrow, and we eliminate that air pollution, we're actually going to accelerate warming rather than decreasing, decelerating warming because of taking away that air pollution. That's what I think would be the effect. But David or Zeke, can you weigh in on that? Well, first, coal-fired is just a fraction. There's lots of secondary... Or one of the big things we learned in the last decade is a lot of the aerosol mass is secondary organics. And so, for example, that means uh, um, ammonia from feedlots as a big contributor in the US combined with nitrogen oxides. So a little more complex than that. But fundamentally, the big reason that uh, aerosols declined is regulation on air pollution, which is a great thing because air pollution kills a border of 5 million people a year globally. Yep. Just to add to that, you know, when we talk about the effects of aerosols, we also need to talk about the effects of non-CO2 greenhouse gases. So if you're in a world where you cut aerosols to zero and didn't change anything else, global temperatures would go up. Um, if you cut CO2 and aerosols to zero and didn't do anything else, you'd have this bump in temperatures as well due to the aerosol declines. But if you cut all greenhouse gases to zero, then you have a very short-lived bump until the cutting of methane counterbalances the warming from aerosols, you know, with some big uncertainties. So it's it's a little bit more complicated than saying there's necessarily warming in the pipeline from reducing aerosols, because it also depends a lot on what we do at the same time around things like methane that are also, you know, short-lived warming agents. Um, but, but yeah, so as David said, cleaning up the air and also this recent regulation around green sulfur fuel uh, are, are two, you know, big causes of, of recent declines in, in global aerosol emissions. Uh, and that's generally a good thing. You know, the, yeah, the impacts okay. of aerosol emissions are really bad for human health. Um, it kills millions of people a year due to outdoor air pollution. Uh, it is something we do need to tackle that is going to go away in the troposphere, at least. 
Um, totally agreed. And and there's this is a place with some deep scientific uncertainty. So I was visiting with and talking with Duncan Watson Paradis, who was the lead author of one of those beautiful papers on the what he calls invisible ship tracks, because they know the GPS locations of the ships. And so they can then actually try and look at the cloud impacts without having to detect the ship cracks directly. And they have, a, I think it was a nature paper, I forget, that produced this really high value for radiative forcing from that shipping. But it, even him as lead author of the paper said he's like very unconfident that's the right answer. And so I think there's quite large uncertainty about how much radiative forcing there was. And so is the impact of shipping really significant part of current warming or not? I think we just don't know. I want to squeeze in one more question from Ed Brost. He asked, the CO2 emissions associated with massive forest fires can partially offset our efforts to reduce fossil CO2 emissions. Can we regrow the forest fast enough to compensate for the biogenic CO2 emissions from forest fires? Oh, he stumped us. (laughs) Zeke. I I can try. Uh, So it's a really important question. You know, biogenic CO2 emissions from things like burning forests are the climate from the climate's perspective, CO2 is CO2, obviously, but there's the ability to have a sink replace those emissions that's not true for something like fossil fuels. It's not like the coal regrows, whereas forests can regrow after a wildfire. Um, however, it does take decades for them to reach uh, and centuries to fully reach the level of carbon storage they had before a, a catastrophic wildfire. And so there's definitely a world where wildfires can push up warming uh, or accelerate warming in a way that you know, might be temporary over the century scale, but certainly could affect, you know, when particular warming levels like 1.5 C are reached relative to the world where we didn't have an increase in, in wildfire emission uh, associated with, uh, you know, more widespread fire weather from warmer conditions. David, sir, anything to add? I, I think we've, uh, we've kicked this one around. Okay, let's, let's wrap. Uh, thank you so much, Zeke. I know just from Looking at you and your rate of publishing online, I was actually just reviewing a a paper, uh, and there is a great reference in there. And I clicked on the reference, and I saw that they're referencing what you'd written uh, earlier this year. And then I saw another reference. So, your publishing output is great, and we appreciate it. We're very grateful for you to come on and spend time with us on the show. Thank you. It was a great conversation. Thanks, guys, for having me. Thanks for listening to Energy versus Climate. The show is created by David Keith, Sarah Hastings Simon, and me, Ed Whittingham, and produced by Eva Voinijescu, with help from Crystal Hickey. Our title and show music is The Wind-Up by Brian Lips. This season of Energy vs. Climate is produced with support from the University of Calgary's Office of the Vice President, Research, and the University's Global Research Initiative. Further support comes from the Trache Family Foundation, the North Family Foundation, and of course our generous listeners. Sign up for updates and exclusive webinar access at energyversusclimate.com and review and rate us on your favorite podcast platform. This helps new listeners find the show. We'll be back with a new show in a couple weeks' time. We hope to see you then.